When we last left off, it was the end of 1983. Diane's window of freedom was slowly coming to a close as investigators got closer and closer to an arrest for murder and attempted murder of her three small children. Diane was pregnant with another baby and could feel the walls closing in. Will Diane survive a murder trial? What ultimately happens to her children? These are the questions to be answered in the final installment of the Diane Downs case. I'm your guest host, Lisa. With me, I have my sister, Marina, and this is the last Baby Break episode of Grimm. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The long-awaited part three. Our gremlins have been dying, but you have to understand that um, this was like the worst time to do a three-part episode with like the holidays and you're a teacher who had to do like grading before like... Before break, yeah, holiday break, yeah. Too, yeah, it was it was a rough couple weeks right before break, yeah. Yeah, but here we are. But before we jump into part three, we have some Patreon shout outs to get through. Uh, first up, I'm going to spell it first. It's M-I-C-H-E last name D. So I did some research and it could be Mike or Mish or Mish or Mike, if you're going with the super American pronunciation. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go Mish. Let's Mish go MD. D. Woo! <laughs> Mish MD. Woo. Thank you so much. We love you. <laughs> Uh, Carol W. Woo! Yeah, Carol. Carol! Thank you so much. We love you. Jessica W. Okay, Woo! the W is Jessica. Yeah, Jessica, thank you so much. We love you. Casey M. Woo! Yeah, Casey. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. We have Hannah. Woo! Hannah. Hannah's Hannah. the best. Thank you. We love you. We have Mary E. Mary. Mary. <laughs> Mary. <laughs> we love you. We have Maggie G. Woo-woo. Okay, Maggie. Hey, Maggie. Thank yeah. you so much. We love you. We have Vic. Woo. Okay, Vic. Hey, yeah. Vic. We love you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. And last, we have Ava P. Woo. Ava. Ava P. We love you. Thank you so much. Guys, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our Patreons. We love you guys so much. Thank you so much for your love and support. If uh, you're listening and you want your own shout out uh, or access to our 14 bonus P Boney episodes, just go to patreon.com and search Grim Colon, a true crime podcast and sign up as a Patreon. Now on with the show. Okay. So the first thing I want to do is I want to circle back to what I said in the last episode about the hardball interview. Okay. Um, I had said that she kept speaking and it had been two tapes long, even though she wanted to stop when the first tape was finished. I finished listening to the entire four tape interview. Oh, Lord. Uh, She literally just kept going, no, put another tape in. I'm not done yet. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wanted to clarify that the investigators did indeed tell her, Diane, your story stinks. And she responds with, well, then you better get some deodorant. (laughs) That was, in fact, part of the interview. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. She Uh, sucks ass, but that's amazing. Yeah. It was quite quite an interview to listen to. Yeah. Now, on to the end of this very long, completely bananas, but hopefully entertaining in a weird way story. Yeah. When we last left off in part two, it was the end of 1983. Um, Cheryl Lynn would have been eight on January 10th, 1984. And an ad ran in the classifieds under personal. It read, happy birthday, Cheryl Lynn Downs, January 10th, 1967 to May 19th, 1983. We loved you very much. Jesus loved you too. He took you to heaven when you were only seven. We miss you, mom, grandma, and grandpa. Oh, Yeah. So um, that was just uh, the investigators found it in the classifieds and were like, oh, of course, Diane would write a poem and put it in the paper for Cheryl's birthday. That's so sad, though. Yeah, it is. So thanks to the funding they pulled together in December, Paul Alton and Doug Welsh were back on the case. Uh, the DA's office also scraped up the funds to rehire a six-year veteran investigator, 
Ray Broderick. Where Alton was an expert on firearms, Broderick was an expert on people. He was good at studying people's behaviors, the way they spoke, any seconds of pause, shifts of eyes, things like that. He had watched as many interviews of Diane as he could, and he listened to as many tapes as he could. What he picked up from Diane was a typical defensive pattern. He noticed her speech was that of an individual who feels nothing and is attempting to feign sorrow. Mm. He noted her quote-unquote grief seemed plastic. He was considered an expert at human body language and speech patterns and could spot a lie and could also tell when someone was telling the truth. That would be such a good set of skills to have. It would. In your everyday life, not just for your career. (laughs) Well, I feel like, I I don't know that I'd want that though, because you'd be like, did she just lie to me? I'd be like, did you like that scarf? They'd be like, yes, I loved it. It's like, fuck you, you're lying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know that I'd want that in an everyday situation. (laughs) I feel like I'd be analyzing everything. Did do you, do you think I'm good at this? Yes. Oh, no, they don't. I don't know. Imagine <laughs> what am I doing? Ha- imagine having that set of skills and anxiety. Yeah. I don't think, <laughs> I, I don't think I'd want to do that on a daily basis. Maybe for a job, yes, but not, not in everyday life. No. So Hughie had three sized dolls made of the three children, anatomically correct ones that they often use to help victims of violence communicate. They were the same size as the three children and were deliberately dressed in the Downs children's old clothes. Not the ones from the crime scene, but like... It's like spooky. Yeah. Yeah, their clothes. Um, Danny and Christy actually took the dolls home and were allowed to play with them to get used to them. They were trying to prep the children for what was becoming an inevitable trial. Mm-hmm. Ray uh, Broderick, the new investigator that they rehired, wanted to meet the children, so he went over to the house in the guise of picking up the dolls. Danny warmed to him immediately, but Christy was very cautious. She kind of watched him from the edge like an animal that doesn't want to get too close, but is still curious as to kind of what's going on. When they, um, but when they had to go get the dolls to give to him, he asked for them to show him where the children were sitting in the red car. And Christy was willing to participate in this activity. So they had two couches kind of act as the two seats of the car. And Christy immediately put the three dolls exactly in the car where the investigators had speculated the children had been sitting and where they had found them at the emergency room. She was trying to explain something to Ray, but wasn't making any sense. So he asked her to be her mom and to play Diane. She enacted walking to the trunk of the car um, and then to the driver door. Using her fingers as a gun, she pointed it at Cheryl first, (gasps) then at Christy, her doll, then Danny, and just went pow, pow, pow. (gasps) And Hughie's like, got her. Well, yeah, so this is actually Ray Broderick, but yeah, it's still the same, yeah. The lawmen are like, got her. (laughs) Yeah. She even hunched over like there was a car roof, even though it was just a couch, so she was really enacting what she saw. Oh my gosh. Um, Christy wanted to tell him more, but she broke down and was sobbing, so Ray told Hughie that Christy had turned the corner and would make a great witness. Wow. Mm -hmm. So the grand jury continued to meet to decide if an indictment could be made of Elizabeth Diane Downs. Lou, Nick Knickerbocker, (laughs) testified on the 27th of January and then flew back to Arizona the next morning. Diane actually had no idea he was even in town. By the way, wait, can I just say something? Mm -hmm. When I was looking for photos for the Instagram, when I was reading an article, Nick was spelled K-N-I-C-K. Oh, like Knickerbocker. Yeah, the first part of Knickerbocker. So I feel like that's where the Nick nickname came in. In case anyone was wondering, maybe that person, maybe the article I, I read, they just made it up. I but. still don't know if that's just a Diane nickname or other people called him Nick. It could be, I don't know. But I no idea. That just, just, it, it did not come that. up in the many things that solve I solved that at. mystery, if you will. <laughs> oh, so she didn't know he was there at the time. She found out about it weeks later. Um, during this time, Diane was really feeling the pressure. Waves of rumors would spread through the media that an arrest was imminent, but no one could ever confirm that, like, from someone credible that it was actually happening. So there'd be like, there's going to be an arrest, and then no arrest would happen. There's going to be an arrest, no arrest would happen. So mm. she was really, like, on edge. She actually developed ulcers. Oh, Lord. Um, and her situation at home was disintegrating. She had been at her parents for eight months, and the strain was wearing on all of them. Um, she found religion again during this time, and Welch spent countless days tracking her movements. She only went to work, church, and home. One by one, every member of her family was being called to testify in front of the grand jury. Her mom was sure Diane was hiding something. Wes, her father, was worried that she might say something about him and them. Even her parents were strained with each other. She wasn't sure what to do, but decided she should speak out less. A direct quote from, a direct quote from her, I'll say one thing for sure. It can't hurt to keep my mouth shut. 
And Anne Rule in the book points out, it could not hurt indeed, but it was a little late in the game. Yeah, I think after your like four tape interview, yeah, all Gr- has been said. Kremlins, if you've learned anything from listening to this episode or this podcast, the best advice is just shut the fuck up. Shut up. Get a lawyer. Shut up, shut up and get a lawyer. Yes. And then listen to that lawyer when they tell you to shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On February 24th, Ray finally met Diane when he served up two subpoenas to appear in front of the grand jury. One for Diane and one for her brother, Paul, that she was closest with and would confide in. I did find out that the name Paul is not actually his name. Okay. Um, but I don't even remember what his real name is. So. Okay. It was just changed in the book. for. I don't understand why some <laughs> names are changed, but others are not. Just to know. confuse the shit out of you. Probably, yes. Um, Raid made sure, made sure to serve the subpoena at her house while she was alone. They ended up talking for four or five hours together. Diane later wrote in her diary that she felt it went well and that he believed her and that kind of thing. What she didn't know is that she had spent a lot of time jousting with an expert interrogator. Mm-hmm. He was, he could pick up on all her cues. Yep. Ray was convinced after that talk that it wasn't that Diane was repressing the memories into her subconscious. She knew what she had done. She just happened to be excellent at only talking about things that would work for her at the time. Hmm. Um, and so the situation at the Fredrickson's home finally exploded. Over dinner, there was a huge argument where Diane finally turned to her mother and told her about the molestation that happened 15 years ago. Her mother didn't believe her, and Wes told her to get out. So the next day, the 27th, the family went in front of the grand jury. She then moved out of her dad's house, but she had nowhere to go. She had no friends or no family that would take her in. Uh, she tried to go to her baby daddy's house, but he wasn't home. Oh. So she ended up sleeping in her car. Okay. Yeah. The grand jury finally handed down a secret indictment, the state of Oregon versus Elizabeth Diane Downs. The charges were murder, two counts of attempted murder, and two counts of assault in the first degree. Good. In Oregon, murder was an unclassified felony. There were no degrees of murder, and the death penalty was not in existence at that time. Okay. So the next day, February 28th, 1984, nine months and one week from the shooting, Diane was finally arrested. Yay. Yes. Yay. And they planned it out to a T. They intercepted her at work, but did not use handcuffs. They just kind of took her because they didn't want a big scene. Okay. They simultaneously executed search warrants for a storage garage, her parents' house, and her car. Um, Chris Rosage, a female deputy... Um, was there for the arrest and would be there with Diane for much of her time after that. All of the pictures that you see of Diane where she's standing with a deputy, mm-hmm. that female deputy is Chris Rosage. So okay. she's quite involved. She actually like cries for Diane later on because oh. she, yeah, she gets like so wrapped up in this lady. She's with her like so often. Ooh. Um, her bail was set at 15000 per charge, so a total of $75,000. That's it? What yes. year was this? Eighty four. 1984, yes. Okay. Uh, the next day, she pled not guilty, and the judge revoked her, ba- her bail, so it didn't matter. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, her trial was set for May 8th, and the full media circus began. Mm-hmm. All the major papers in the Northwest had full spreads of the Diane Down story, interviews with her parents. There was so much pre-trial publicity that the judge issued a gag order. Yep. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, so Diane tried to get the evidence from her house and her car from the night of May 19th thrown out. She claimed that she was so disoriented and so upset that she hadn't understood the papers she had signed, allowing them to search. Yeah, her, okay. Her request was denied. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Sure, bitch. Yep, she tried. So, Hugh and his team were working 18 to 20-hour days to prepare for trial. Ray Broderick held what he called witness school. Hughie told Ray what he planned to question from each person, and then Ray would play Hughie or the defense Jagger and run through lines of questioning with mostly the lawmen. That's intense. Mm-hmm. He worked extra hard on the hospital staff that there were there that night. They were super nervous. They're just hospital staff. They're not. Oh, yeah. They're not used to this. And um, we're having a hard time with what to say and what not to say as far as like patient confidentiality goes. So they worked extra hard with them so that they would feel confident with what they could talk about and what they couldn't talk about. Mm-hmm. A scaled version of Diane's red Nissan was made out of foam. And they had the dolls that represented the children. They had aerial photos taken in sequence so that the jury could see the route on the road that Diane took from the shooting to the hospital. And pictures of the shell casings were blown up really big. This is so intense. It, it is. It definitely is. So while Hughie and his team are preparing for trial, Diane spends her time writing letters to people. Go figure. Um, she ends up writing back and forth to male inmates that send her letters. <laughs> Pretty much if anyone sent her a letter, she'd answer them. 
and starts corresponding with a male inmate that was the convicted I-5 killer. I'm not going to say his name here just in case Grimm covers the case later on. Okay. I don't want any spoilers, but the two of them start writing erotic, steamy letters to each other. He, he's a total stranger to her, and yet they send pictures to each other. Mm, um, mm-hmm. He goes by the ten, pen name Squirrely and calls her Blondie. <laughs> okay. It, yeah. it takes a special kind of person to fall in love with an inmate through being a Mm -hmm. pen pal and Mm -hmm. it just makes sense that diane downs would be one of those people yeah so when she finds out who he is because eventually someone was like hey by the way this dude you're talking to is actually you know the i-5 killer she doesn't care that he's kind of a convicted murderer rapist she said he seems like a nice guy she's like join the club yeah she she (laughs) said he seems like a nice guy we have some serious connections going on so much in common (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. So they put the trial in the largest courtroom they have in the courthouse, and yet it still wasn't big enough for everyone that wanted to get in. They limited the press to the first row, um, and literally every day of this trial, people would stand outside in line for hours before the doors opened in hopes to be able to get into that courtroom. That's so crazy. They would pack in like 100 people into 80 seats. People would get into the courtroom and be like, that's not fair. Those four fat ladies are taking up the seats in that row. (laughs) They could fit more if they weren't all there. Oh, (laughs) my circ. It was literally a circus. Holy shit. Yep. Um, This was uh, considered a young trial. The judge was 36, the prosecutor 39, the defense attorney 38, and the defendant 28. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was considered kind of like a younger younger (laughs) trial. Considering some cases I've been on, uh, one attorney's 75, the other one is 78. Yeah. The defendant is uh, 69, and the judge (laughs) is 84. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, they were all all pretty young. So Hughie files a motion in Limine. 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 There we Motion go. Motion and limine. Motion and limine to try to limit the amount of references the defense can make in regards to the bushy-haired stranger sightings. <laughs> oh, the bushy-haired stranger. In, in regards to the sightings, because there were a ton of calls that came in about these sightings. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Then they were hunted down, and obviously none of them came to fruition, so he didn't want all of that brought in. By the way, his sketch, he didn't even have bushy hair in the sketch. <laughs> it was, like, weirdly straight. I don't know. I thought it would be, like, a big, curly bush of hair on his head nope it was just like a weird rocker looking dude <laughs> so weird <laughs> yeah i don't know so uh, hugie uses his evidence of diane's numerous versions of the story to build his case ultimately the judge sides with hugie and jagger is only allowed to use two of the bushy-haired stranger reports okay the jury was made up of nine men three women and three alternate jurors the jurors weren't sequestered because the county couldn't afford to house and feed them all for what they expected to be a very lengthy trial the average age of the jurors was middle-aged. Hughie open, Hughie's opening speech is an hour long and transcribed fills 80 pages. He lays out for the jury the crime that happened and then the how and why. He uses Diane's letters, interviews, diary entries to show her discrepancies and explain her motive. He reads what is called the masturbation poem. He, <laughs> What the hell is that? It's literally a poem she wrote about like, the spark inside grow like it's a it's a whole poem about masturbation and how she's masturbating and feeling and that was relevant to the murder of her children how um so throughout the throughout the whole trial hugie tries to discredit her personality okay by kind of obviously painting her as the slut as the like adulteress as the like crazy person okay so he uses a lot of her weirder things to kind of show what kind of person she was the same reason that i did three parts on her (laughs) so that you would know what kind of a crazy person she is who we're dealing with okay Mm -hmm. yeah he explains what he is going to present and show over the course of the trial he has 50 witnesses lined up to back him up wow jagger gets up and admits for um for shortened terms that she's a slut he's pretty much like yep she's a slut Um, That there will be lovers, that she was obsessed with one man, but not at the expense of her job or her kids. Being a slut doesn't make you a murderer. Nope. So he tries to explain that she will not react the way people expect her to because she was molested as a child. When she has fear and pain, she won't cry. She'll laugh or smile and put on a mask. He doesn't want the jury to be distracted by her lack of or wrong emotional state. Did they really call her a slut or did they say like no, promiscuous? It was like, no, it was, it was a whole long-winded thing and I just okay. s- shortened it to, okay. we know she's a slut. Okay, so the first real day of the trial, May 14th, was the same week as the shooting but a year later because they were okay. shot on May 19th. 
They took the judge, jury, and Diane by bus to the spot of Old Mohawk Road where the shooting happened. Uh, they then took them to the garage where the red car had sat for a year. Back in the courthouse, they started with Heather Plort as witness, then Heather's neighbor who confirmed that Diane left there at 9.50. Then they called Inman, the man who followed Diane's car moving at glacial speed. They, they spot out on the map exactly what time the car was where. He testifies that at 10.17, he found a spot in the road where he could go around Diane. And at that point, there were only four and a half miles from the hospital, but it took Diane another 22 minutes to get to the emergency room. Oh, God, I hate that so much. That's yep. like the worst part of it. Yeah, that keeps coming up in here and yeah. trying to explain away that gap in time. And was there a gap in time and yeah. how much was it and what she could she have been doing in that? Whatever. Because it's gross. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, Jagger tried to get Inman to admit he might not remember clearly, but Inman was solid on what had happened and when it had happened. What had happened was. <laughs> they then start calling all the hospital witnesses. The receptionist, Judy Patterson, who recalls the two different stories Diane told that night. She also relates that Diane asked her that night, are they dead yet? Oh, God. Um, Shelby Day, Rosie Martin, Dr. John Mackey, they comment on the strange behavior and comments of Diane the night of the shooting. When they questioned Mackey for like a good two minutes, he would speak and then Jagger would object and then he would try to speak again and Jagger would object um, because he was trying to explain Diane's behavior as strange. Mm -hmm. He'd be like, well, I saw her. I, I thought it was weird that. And he'd be like, I object. Okay. So I saw her being flat. And then I think that, like, he was trying to explain her emotions yeah. as weird, but he couldn't, he wasn't allowed to explain it in his own personal, I think it's weird that she did right, this. Right, So it took him quite a while, but they eventually come up with a statement that is observation statement of Diane's facial features and gotcha. behavior from Dr. Mackey. Um, they then call Dr. Miller and lastly, Dr. Wilhite. All of the doctors convey how pretty much... Um, dead Christy was when they arrived and it's a sh short of a miracle that she turned around and lived to walk out of that hospital. Oh my God. The doctors list times when Diane's responses were inappropriate and weird. When she was told to bullet miss Danny's heart, she said far out. Um, her, oh my God. her concern for her car, how she said now that her vacation had been spoiled, um, her concern with going to work the next day or so for her new job. Um, and when she went into the room where Will Height was treating Christy, apparently she told him, I know Christy has sustained brain damage and I don't want you to sustain her life. Oh my God. She's like, she's like, pull the plug. And he's like, no, no, no. She's totally fine. She's not on a ventilator. She's like, just pull the plug. Pull the plug. I'm no, her mom. I know. I know. She, oh I know. my God. Yeah. Those poor kids. Jagger tried to get the men in cross to say that maybe that's what she said, but they wouldn't budge. Mm -hmm. Will Height eventually stated, I said what she said. <laughs> they were getting so mad. Um, they, they called Dr. Bruce Becker to the stand who had taken care of the two children when they were in the ICU. He explains what happened to both children and their, their wounds and what that means. He explains scientifically Christy's stroke and how that will affect her speech. And he explains that sometimes she may say the wrong word, but will know immediately that she has not said what she meant to say. And then she can, she'll try okay. to change it. He also explains what the damage done to her brain will not affect her memory because mm -hmm. that's important. That's an important yeah. piece. So can you imagine trying to talk and you're like, oh, I went and got the bread. Garbage. Like, yeah. you know what you're trying to say and you say this random word and then you're like, shit, what it, I meant to say. Yeah. This other, I can't it, I, even imagine how frustrating that would be. No, I can't either. Your brain no. can do some wild things to you. It can. And to be aware of them, though, I think is the crazy part. At least that's better, though. It is. Instead of people just being like, I'm sorry, you got the bread. Did you mean garbage? Because then you'd be like, what did I say? <laughs> yeah. So they call Christy Ann Downs to the stand. Uh, Hughie questions her first, asking her a series of questions, making sure she knows what a lie is and what a truth is. He holds up a piece of paper and says this paper is blue. Is that a lie or is that truth? So she can kind of prove that she knows what that means. And she's eight? She is, at this point, she is nine. Nine, okay. This happened when she was eight. Um, he then asks her about the night they got shot. Through a series of questions, he walks her through that night. Her saying yes or no to each question, it was a lot easier for her to say yeah 
then yes. And for her to say, yeah, then some sort of answer. Right. Um, so most of his questions were like, yes or no questions. She tells Hughie that her mom shot Cheryl in the front seat first, who was sitting up and awake. Aww. She then shot Danny, who was asleep and lying on his side in the back seat. And Aww. then she shot Christy herself. She said her mom had pulled over, hit the trunk lever, went to the back of the car and then came back and shot them. She broke down and cried a number of times. The whole courtroom, you could just hear a pin drop during her testimony. She's so brave. I know. Diane stared at her smiling, trying to convey something to her. They had locked eyes a few times, but Christy just continued on. Um, Jack, a bad bitch. Right? And Hughie's questioning her very quietly. Like, it's all very, um, very quiet and gentle. Jagger then cross-examines her and asks his questions in confusing manner. Um, often he would start a question and then drop it. He would be like... So do you think confessing, no, scratch that. Start again. Do you know what confession, no, okay. So what do you think, and he would just like start a question and drop it and start another question. On purpose or was he just like squirrely? I believe Anne Rule wrote that it was a tactic. Not I-5 squirrely, by the way. I don't want to confuse our gremlins. <laughs> I'm just asking if he was connection. being squirrely. No, um, it was his way of questioning, but I guess okay. it is a tactic to kind of be confusing. Okay. And to like... That's really messed up because she's nine. Because she's nine <laughs> like, and this... Right. Um, so he kept dropping it and rephrasing it, trying to kind of confuse the child, but she stands her ground. Jagger's line of questioning was trying to prove that Christy's memory was mixing up from the ride to the beach the week before and the ride to Heather's house that night. So they were trying to say that she's just confused, like... She says she heard this song, but really that was when they went to the beach. And the ride to the um, beach, that was the day that she may have originally planned on shooting correct, them. the day they she got was the like, unicorn. Yep, the She's like, before. let's go to the beach. Let's yep. go to the park. Let's go to the stream. Let's go. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's go run six miles. Um, so Christy even identified the tape they were listening in, in the, to in the car as the Duran Duran tape. Um, he tried to ask her questions to get her to admit that she had been coached on what to say and how to say it. Or that she had been confused on the whole thing based on what others had told her, but she didn't bite. It was uh, clear that Jagger had lost the, the courtroom because everyone was pissed that they, he was oh. going at her like this. Well, yeah. you yep. got to be careful with that strategy, especially against a nine-year-old claiming that her mother shot her. Exactly. And her siblings. And throughout this whole trial, Hughie plays into that a lot. He really pays attention to who he's questioning mm -hmm. and how he's questioning it so as to not alienate the jury. Yeah. Because, I mean... In the end, too, Diane Downs is a very pregnant, nine months pregnant woman at this oh, point. Yeah. She's Young a sympathetic mother. Yeah. defendant. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he really plays into that. Jagger, not so much. Yeah. So the next day, Dr. Peterson is the first person to take the stand. He relates that he never doubted Christy had memory of that night and that after he played Hungry Like a Wolf by Duran Duran, the memories came flooding back, but Christy didn't want to tell him about them. During therapy, Christy had drawn a number of pictures, the plored trailer, Danny and Cheryl, the red car, the gun, the shooter. The shooter picture was a picture of a woman with short cropped hair. Mm. The gun was a striking resemblance to a 22 Ruger. Oh my gosh. He related how he would have Christy write the name of the shooter on paper and seal it in an envelope and then burn it in the fire just to get it out. Right. On December 19th, she had told him he didn't need to burn the envelope, but he couldn't open it until she had said it was okay. Oh, wow. Hughie hands the still sealed envelopes <gasps> to Peterson in the o to open in the courtroom. Christy has finally given permission for them to open them. All of them. Who shot Cheryl? Mom. Who shot Danny? Mom. Who shot Christy? Mom. Peterson said that she has never wavered from her story and that she has never said anyone but her mom has done it. I can feel the air that in was that in that courtroom. courtroom. And this is why people literally packed in to watch this spectacle. Even, I mean, this is an insane case, but I have been in the courtroom when verdicts are read on just a, a everyday, like assault case or something. And it's like, the, it, it's like palpable when they're like, does the jury have a verdict? And then there's that silence when they carry over the, like, it's so tense. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine being in this courtroom. Nope. I can't either. It's like the hairs on my neck are standing I just up got when you're saying when that, I like said opening mom. the envelopes. Yep, yeah. I just oh got God. chills when I said mom. Blah. Yep. They then start calling the lawmen. <laughs> Get those lawmen up there. <laughs> one by one, they come in and tell their accounts of the night of the shooting, their investigation role, their interactions with Diane. I would like to add that rule put in that when Tracy was next was next to the gallery. There was a whole 
tittering of people and like dick tracy Ooh, dick tracy like oh my god yep. everybody's mad at me that i didn't know who that was i still don't know who it is so sorry guys so jagger goes after tracy claiming that there was possibly a break in the chain of evidence with the bullet casings from the scene and the apartment tracy gets pissed mm. and doesn't like being called a fraud so jagger tries to get him to admit he made a mistake but tracy wasn't having it Apparently, Tracy had solved every murder case he had ever investigated, and he wasn't about to start faking evidence now that he was about to retire. Holy shit. Yep. A man named John Peckles comes in next, the man in charge of the chain of custody for Ooh, all the I evidence. Like, I like that name. Peckles? Peckles. This should be a clown. Peckles the clown? <laughs> I like that. Probably is one. Um, from the bullet casings from the hospital the night of the shooting to the children's clothes, the beach towel, all of that. And he testifies that, you know, the chain of evidence was, was maintained. Roy Pond then opens the brown paper bags. Mm -hmm. Another moment of, I can't even imagine. And like starts the rustling, dead silence with taking, rustling. Starts taking out the children's bloodstained clothes Ugh. from the night of the shooting. He was crying. Who? Roy Pond, crying as he pulls these clothes out of the bag. Oh these little gosh. white, these little white, white shorts that were on this three-year-old. No. These tiny clothes with like blood stains and bullet no. holes. Um, it, it, like he's crying and Diane never even looked up after he started. She wouldn't even look. Mm -hmm. The whole courtroom was just in shock. Oh my God. It was, it was a shock value. Mm -mm. They then call Steve Downs. He testifies to their marriage and their relationship to putting hands on her, to having the guns, giving the Ruger to Diane and then taking it away again. He said he thought he had it on the shelf in his closet, but after the shooting, he looked all over and he didn't have it. He said if he had, he would have brought it to the police. Mm-hmm. Um, so May 19th comes over the weekend and it's a glorious spring weekend. May 21st, the courtroom is transformed with a foam car. The dolls are in, <laughs> yep, big foam car. Yep. The dolls are in the courthouse too. They start with Jim Pex and Chuck Vaughn who go over the forensics. So they put a piece of dowel through the handle of a fake Ruger to show the angle and trajectory oh, yeah. of the bullet wounds in each doll. They also explain using all of their evidence, how far from the wounds the gun had have would have had to bend. Yep. Um, Christia had been shot twice in the chest and her hand had come up to try to block the second bullet, which is why she had the, the hole through her thumb right. on her hand. Um, they then explain the high velocity back spatter on the car. Mm -hmm. Pex also points out that through investigation, they determined that the car's tape deck would not play unless the car keys were in the ignition. Okay. So here Christie's saying she heard Duran Duran hungry like a wolf playing while the shooting is happening. But Diane's story, the, the, the keys. every single time Diane tells the story, she took the keys out and put the ring on her finger for safety when she went to talk to the bushy-haired stranger. Mm. Yep, so there's a huge discrepancy there. Yep. Um, Christy could vividly remember the song Hungry Like a Wolf, and it triggered a trauma response for her. But according to Diane's story, she had the keys in her hand. She pretended to toss them. So that couldn't have happened. Every time you say hungry like a wolf, all I can think of is that disgusting late night pizza place at Great Wolf Lodge. <laughs> it's called hungry like a wolf. And is it's, it? It's gross and expensive. And that's all I, I mean, can think everything of. at Great Wolf Lodge is gross and expensive. <laughs> it's valid. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Pex then explains the tool markings on the bullet casings using a very enlarged photograph. He hoped since there were gun owners on the jury that it would help. Um, but Hughie was right when he was afraid that the jury wouldn't understand the pictures that well. Um, then Jagger gets to counter Pex. He gives him these long winded winding questions, trying to get the jury to get confused, um, get bored, lose interest. But Pex keeps up and gets rather frustrated himself. They spent countless hours talking about blood spatter and blood patterns. Jagger suggesting alternative theories and Pex going over why that couldn't be true. And in the end, focusing on the blood was not the best strategy mm. because to a layman, <laughs> reminding me that there's a pool of blood from a child right. is not really the greatest thing to focus on. And right. there was literally hours of talk about blood spatter oh and blood God. pools and all of that sort of stuff. They, they wheel in a TV and a VCR and play this video reenactment that Diane had done with them a couple days after the shooting. They had taken her back out to the road and she's got this, the cast on her arm and the sling and they have her play herself. And then Tracy plays the gunman and Diane kind of directs him where to go, and they have this video. Um, it was a, a reenactment of really the first story that she had told. Right. They then play Hungry Like a Wolf on the tape player, 
And Diane smiles away, tapping her foot to the beat, mouthing the words as the song plays, like dancing in her chair. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And to her, to her, uh, lawyer's credit like that poor man was trying to make like a bouquet out of shit (laughs) i know really and he would be like knock it off and she'd be like (laughs) that was that was a real flowers and shit situation (laughs) yeah yep they call more cops to the stand paul alton can only testify to the few things that they could prove he had spent countless hours searching for things but like Mm -hmm. all of that didn't come to fruition so um, her brother, Paul Fredrickson, was a hostile witness for the state. I'm assuming that means, like, he didn't want to be, but they made him. Yes. And then if you're, like, it's, if you call the witness and they're hostile, like, they don't want to testify or they're not giving you answers, then you could cross-examine them and you can ask leading questions if they're considered a hostile witness. Oh, okay. Um, but Diane had confided in him. He was probably like the only person she was confiding in. Mm. So he testified that she had told him that she wanted to change her story from one man to two. And he had told her, well, if it's true, do it. That's fine. Like, and she said, yeah, it was true. Um, they called Cord Samuelson, that first married lover that she had taken in Eugene when she got there. And he says that she had confessed to him that the story with the two masked men that used her name and knew about her tattoo and said things like, if he can't have the kids, you can't either. And watch this bitch as he shot her kids. He asked her why she didn't tell the police. And she told him her lawyer said it's bad to change your story partway through an investigation. (laughs) She told Cord that she was convinced the cops didn't have the murder weapon and told him, how can they convict without a murder weapon? Oh, my God. No, no body, weapon, no, no crime. <laughs> yeah, no body, no crime. <laughs> oh, my God. They then call Lou Lewiston. Oh, Lou. Nick Knickerbocker to the stand. And now, mind you, when his name is called, this courtroom full of people just, like, go silent. And they're watching the door. Like, they couldn't wait to see... Who this was. Who this was. <laughs> and so he gets on the stand. And he, I guess he was kind of hunky because the women were all like, oh, my God. He was pretty handsome. I posted a picture of him. um, So he goes through their whole relationship, pretty much all the details that we've been over in part two. Mm -hmm. Diane finally shows some emotion when Lou admits that he felt relief after she moved to Oregon and was out of his fear. She's like, how could you say that? They then talk about that tattoo that matches Diane's and he tells how she wanted him to put her name on it, but he refused. (laughs) Hughie asks him if he, if it has a name on it now. And he says, yes, (gasps) it says sweet Charlene. Oh, Charlene. Oh, damn. That must have pissed Diane off so much. Diane also reacted to that. But even then, her reactions are very fleeting. Like, she lets herself react and then is like, oh, shit, I'm not supposed to react. And, like, pulls it back in again. Charlene. Um, For the most part, during the whole trial, she stays pretty calm looking. She rubs her belly. She runs her fingernails along her belly. She's super pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, She leans over and whispers to Jagger. She'll giggle and laugh to Jagger. Or she looks away if there's a demonstration or evidence shown. Um, She does not show emotion. It's like so much worse that she's super pregnant during this trial. Mm -hmm. Like it is just unfathomable. And one of the biggest things was Hughie was terrified that she was going to go into early labor and oh. have to pause the trial and yeah. ruin any sort of momentum that they might have had. Oh, yeah, that would be horrendous. Mm-hmm. So literally, they would wait, like, every weekend, they would wait with bated breath, praying that she didn't go into labor over the weekend to start this trial again on Monday. Oh, my God. The prosecution then plays 25 tapes for the jury. Each jury's given a thick black binder with the written transcriptions in them. Oh, my gosh. These tapes were tapes of interviews with Diane. Diane and Lou, both ways, Diane... Tape Lou. Lou taped Diane. <laughs> you taping me? Yes. But are you taping me? Yes. yes. And of course, the hardball interview was last. Finally, on the last day of May 1984, after 33 witnesses, 428 items of evidence, the prosecution rests. Okay. So Diane Downs now takes the stand. Ooh. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah. No. She was like the biggest piece of the defendant's the defense's thing. They, she was pretty much what they had. Well, they had nothing else. I yeah. Get it, so Diane, um, so Jagger starts going through her strange reactions to things, making sure she knows this is serious since she continues to laugh and smile. She explains it, that her father never allowed crying or showing of weakness. So you laugh instead of cry. She testified to her childhood, what she thought the word control meant. 
and how she hated to be controlled by men because of her father. She testified about Steve and how he mistreated the kids and how he, he mistreated her. Um, she lit up when the kids were mentioned. She would all of a sudden like really like light up. No, too little, too late, man. She was shown photo after photo of the kids when they were little, and every picture they would hand it to her, and she would, like, have the same reaction where she'd be like, oh, and grow, like, really sad looking at the picture, and then get really happy and explain what the picture was. And Hughie was like, oh, my God, can we, like, yes, we get it. You look at a picture, and you have emotions about your children. Like, can we can oh we move on now? Oh, my God. And then, so her lawyer had to keep changing the subject. Whenever he, it seemed like her emotions were going to be inappropriate or she was about to laugh, he would like jump to another question that had nothing to do with what they were just talking about. Um, his questions jumped all over the place. At one point, he asks her about the motive from the state killing the kids to get Lou. She admits that she loved Lou even after the shooting, but says that he was too much trouble, too much work. She tells the court that she left Arizona for Oregon to get away from her old life, not to make Lou follow her. Hughie had literally read her unsent letters in his opening statement that contradicted that. <laughs> they had read countless diary entries during the trial. Witnesses had come and said she talked about him following her, all that stuff, and yet she still changes her narrative during her own testimony. She's like, well, what had happened was. <laughs> so Diane spent four and a half days on the stand. My God. She explained everything, even like past what was questioned of her. She would just paint a word picture. Oh, she must have been the worst witness. Her lawyer must have been so cringy, like cringing on the inside when he she would go to answer. He didn't have a choice though. Well, like really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. She talked about her entire life, explained away every single thing the prosecution had brought up, how Christy must have confused the beach trip with the night of the shooting. She painted them a word picture. Mm -hmm. She fills in the missing time gaps by saying she had pulled over on the road and was talking to Cheryl for a, Cheryl for a while about her kitten and school. And then she balanced her checkbook because she had to buy school lunch tickets that week. She had never mentioned the checkbook before. So this was literally like her way of being like, no, no, the shooting happened later because I had before the shooting pulled over mm. to balance my checkbook. If I had a nickel for every time I pulled over in the middle of the road to just balance in the my middle checkbook. of the night with your three yeah. kids to balance your checkbook. Yep. Yeah. If I had a nickel. Yep. Um, after another weekend, Diane comes into court late. Everyone in the courtroom thought that they had to wait, that they, that waited in line for hours for nothing and that Diane was in labor. But Diane does come in looking all tired, pale. She was oh, exhausted no. and depressed. Over the weekend, she learned that the baby she was carrying was not hers. A judge had ordered the child's custody to the state, even though it wasn't even born yet. Oh, I and was like, what do you mean it was not hers? Wouldn't even be able to hold the baby girl that she had already named Charity Lynn. Was she, this was a surrogate pregnancy, right? No, this was the one where she got that one random dude to have sex with her, Matt <laughs> Jensen. And then... She got pregnant with oh my god okay. a replacement child. All right, yeah. And the state was like, "Ooh, no, see, you can't, you can't have, have that. this yeah. one." Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she continues her testimony, tries to explain away her change in story because of dreams that she was having. Her mind was making it easier for her to believe that there was nothing she could have done to save her children. Her memory of the night and her dreams were mixing together. Mm, that happens. That was that was her explanation. Yep. Sometimes that happens. So Hughie finally gets to cross-examine her. He'd been waiting over a year for this. Oh, yeah. He must have had a field day. So during the trial, he had lost a ton of weight. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. He was having awful pains in his jaw, but his doctor told him that it was in his head. They later found out that he had ground his teeth so hard that he had split the tooth vertically in the back. Oh, my God. Up into the root. And that's why he was having all this pain. That's from stress. Mm -hmm. He pretty much was surviving on milkshakes and coffee. Okay. Yep. Um, so Hughie questions her softly and carefully. He does not want to alienate the jury. Mm -hmm. He also doesn't want to go to battle with Diane. So he asks her all sorts of questions and gets her into hot water before she realizes it. She, you know, he kind of plays the nice guy. Mm -hmm. So of course she'll talk about anything. So she doesn't right. even realize she's in trouble until it's over. He gets her to admit that there is a difference between sex and real heart love, as she calls it, and that she had only ever had heart love for Lou. Aww. That people shouldn't necessarily believe a grown-up over a child. Hughie was a master artist interviewing her. He reminds her that she had said that a trial is a play and that the best actor would win. She also had said that she thought Hughie would cut her off and not let her explain. 
He asked Diane if he did that, and she said no and thanked him for letting her speak. <laughs> he then passes Diane back to Jagger. <laughs> so after he gets her to say all the things he wants her to say, he's like, did I do a good job? And she's like, yes, thank you. You did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> Jagger's cross just tries to wipe some of the adulterous, like, skank narrative away. Yeah. Because Hughie really was focusing on that. Yep. Um, he focuses on her religious upbringing, a list of guys she dated but was not intimate with. Okay. Yep. Jagger tries to put her second diary, the one after the shooting, in as evidence, but Hughie objects. He claims that the diary is a fantasy diary, what Mm. Diane wants her life to be like, and is fiction. The judge agreed, and the diary was not allowed to be put into evidence, although Diane was allowed to reference it if she needed to for memory. Okay. Yep. So that was a huge win for Hughie. Mm Mm-hmm. The defense had no big guns to call, no surprise witnesses. The majority of the defense rested on Diane herself. But Jagger does call a few witnesses, a few country folks from the area that had reported seeing a yellow car, a man hitchhiking that night, things like that. Just tidbits of witnesses to possibly verify a few points of the story. Um, He calls Willa Dean Fredrickson to the stand. He asks her questions about that night, about Diane's childhood, about their discipline, um, Hughie on cross gives some of Diane's quotes from her earlier testimony and Willa Dean was shocked by his comments. Like he would ask Willa, Willa Dean, did you, you know, did you close off your daughter and, you know, for your husband's benefit? And she was like, what? No, <laughs> but she wasn't allowed in the courtroom because she was a possible witness until mm. after her testimony. So yeah. she didn't know Diane had said all of these things already. Okay. So Willa Dean's her mom, right? Willa Dean's her mom. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Wes was not called to the stand, her dad. That's her dad. And her dad was absent through this whole thing. Okay. He was literally the postmaster, and in his office, normally, like, the window was open. It was closed ever since the trial started. He wanted no one to see him, no one to talk to him. Yeah. Um, Jagger calls his own blood spatter expert to the stand. Bart Reed says that you can't guarantee that those spots on the car are from back spatter and has done a lot of scientific work with blood to disprove it. He's very scientific and seems to kind of lose the jury and the courthouse by the time he's done. Hughie gets up and gets him to admit that he can't discredit Pex's original findings. Mm. In the end, the defense bases its case solely on dreams and human memories. Jagger calls Dr. Harold Hawkins, who testifies to the mind and how dreams play a part in reality. He tries to explain how Diane's memories could change, could be confused. He also tries to explain why Christy might be confirming something that might not have actually happened. Yeah, okay. They're like, who are you going to believe? This poor, innocent, little nine-year-old who's been consistent the entire time and is scared to death. Or this cuckoo banana pants lady who keeps changing her story every chance she gets and is sitting in the front car, bop, is sitting in the front seat, bopping to Hungry Like a Wolf. Who are you going to believe? Yeah. She does say that she, that that song doesn't have bad memories for her because it wasn't playing during the shooting. Yeah, okay. So she just likes that song. That was Cheryl's song. That was Cheryl's favorite song. Oh, my god. Her Sherry. So Hughie's last move is to call a string of witnesses to testify that there was no plot to brainwash Christy and Danny, their therapists, their caseworkers, their doctors. And the last witness Hughie calls is his own doctor who refutes the whole unconscious transference theory that the defense's doctor had put out. Right. Diane has not gone into labor and has not had her baby. They had made it to the end of the trial. All they needed was the final arguments and a verdict. Yep. So on June 11th, six weeks after the trial began, Hughie stands to deliver his final arguments. He spends almost five hours ripping apart every excuse Diane gave, every alibi, every explanation she had for the issues in her story. Towards the end, he uses her own words against her. He quotes her from her diaries, her interviews, and her testimony to prove that she had motive and that w- and she would have shot her children for that motive. Jagger's closing arguments, when typed up, filled two hundred pages holy shit yep he continues on with his rambling type fast speech meant to confuse kept the jury guessing on their toes he keeps telling the jury to take the emotion out of it and just look at the hard facts he points out that there was so much time before the arrest maybe because there was still doubt or maybe even something they didn't know about or maybe it's because the little child that was shot was in a coma and recovering yeah why would the prosecution wait that long to arrest unless there was still doubt Mm. he reminds them all of the little things that don't make sense and reminds them that if there is any doubt they have to acquit Mm -hmm. hugie gets one more chance to undo any damage that jagger has done he reminds the jury that if they find her not guilty they would be saying that christy's lying that the cops planted evidence and were all in on it. That Lou and Steve were all in on it. Mm-hmm. He then takes out the beach towel. He folds it in a couple. He folds it a couple times into a neat triangle, 
which is how the blood stains match up. So Paul Alton knew the towel had to be significant and he had literally folded and refolded that towel over and over trying to figure out how it was folded that the blood stains would match. And then he eventually figures it out and folds it into this triangle and, and it matches. In order for the stains to match up, the towel had to have been neatly folded a few times into a nice triangular bandage. For someone that had just been shot reaching around for something to wrap a wound in, it's a little strange for it to have been ready for it to be used. Mm. Or if it wasn't ready for it to be used, she would have had to take the time to neatly fold it while her children were dying. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Jagger loses it because they, he didn't know they had this theory with this beach towel. Alton literally figured this out like right before the trial started. Did they talk about this at all during the trial though? Because no. So Jagger loses it. Yeah. Objecting to him bringing evidence into a rebuttal, but the judge overrules him. Jagger in his part had mentioned that Diane wrapped her arm while driving. So he allowed Hughie to rebuttal that statement. Okay. Hughie explains to the jury that the wait and arrest was for Christy. Um, and Hughie says that Diane's attitude towards children is fungible. <laughs> so the, f- the word fungible means replacing one thing for another and neither of them matter. You can just swap them out. So a child is aborted and she replaces it with Danny. Ooh. Cheryl is killed and she replaces it with Charity Lynn. Oh, wow. Yep. Hughie ends the trial by getting really angry. He has not shown emotion at all during this entire trial. He gets super angry and startles everyone and states, look, lady, for once you are not going to lie your way out of this situation. It just doesn't cut it. You're a murderer, a cold-blooded, cruel, vicious murderer. The jury finally can go into deliberation on June 14th, 1984. It took the jury three full days of deliberation. At 12.20 a.m. that Saturday, they come to a verdict. Everyone heads back to the courthouse at... 12.20 a.m.? At 1 a.m., yes. So I'm not really sure. Is that normal? Like, I would have assumed they would have waited till business hours on Monday morning to be like, hey, the jury has a verdict. Yeah, we don't do that in Connecticut. I don't know if that's like a state-specific thing. I don't know, but they came up with a verdict at 12.20 a.m. that Sunday, and everyone headed back to the courthouse at 1 a.m. Okay, yeah, no, yep. we don't do that. Yep, um, I thought it was really weird, and I was like, is that normal? So Diane walked in all gussied up. She had her hair done and had been allowed to make do makeup. It was clear that she thought she was being acquitted. She really was all dressed up. She was a hot ticket. Instead, the judge reads guilty on all charges and Ooh-hoo! remands her for sentencing. You got to look your best at 2 a.m. also, you, you by the do. way. <laughs> yep. The verdict was read on June 17th, 1984, which happened to be Father's Day. Bye, bitch. Yep. And there was a whole thing about how they all celebrated after that. Like, oh my God, yeah. I mean, Jagger kind of like they had to fielded the coffee, press, though. but they, <laughs> yeah, they all went to like the judge and them all went to like a late night diner and people yeah, were cheering. That's awesome. Horns were honking in the streets mm-hmm. at two a.m. All the people that w- went back to the courthouse, like, yeah, yeah. I don't even. They said they didn't even know how people found out, but like <laughs> literally, people showed up anyway to hear the verdict. Oh my God. So on June twenty seventh, Diane was induced, and her card that had been with her that entire time, um, Chris was there for her with her delivery because none of her family showed up. She was all by herself. Mm. Otherwise, she would have been alone. Her baby girl was born at 10.06 p.m. and was named Amy Elizabeth. Diane had decided to change the name after Hughie had called Charity Lynn fungible. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I guess Hughie ruined the name Charity Lynn for (laughs) for her. So she named her Amy Elizabeth. And she was allowed to hold her for like four hours she even let like doug (laughs) Doug welch hold her which she hated welch so like whatever um on august 28th two months later diane appeared for sentencing hugie and jagger both spoke and so did dr george sakau who had psychologically evaluated diane in oregon murder brings an automatic life sentence but there's no required minimum unless the person is considered a dangerous offender Mm. In Sakao's opinion, Diane's personality disorders qualified her as a dangerous offender. Yeah. He had diagnosed her with having narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial personality disorders. Mm, okay. She's not insane legally or medically, but she will suffer from these personality disorders her entire life. And it was explained, like, if you're considered insane, you can actually be treated and get better. Yeah. Personality disorders, you can't. That's just who you are. Right. Um, Judge Foote doesn't go easy on her. He speaks to her venomously. He sentences her to life in prison plus 50 years for all the charges with a 25-year mandatory minimum. He told her the court hopes that the defendant will never be free again. 
of come as close to that as possible. Wow. Yep. When they pick Diane up from county jail to bring her to the penitentiary where she'll serve her sentence, she comes out wearing these like skin tight jeans, these crazy black biker boots, this tight shirt. She came out looking sexy. Like she was going to go walk to this prison looking like a hot ticket. And they're going to be a like, statement. you need to strip and touch your ankles. Yep. Making a statement. On the drive there, she actually tries to seduce Doug Welsh. Oh my God. Diane, <laughs> um, stop. You're embarrassing yourself. Who she had hated and called names for like 15 months. Like she actually like shimmied herself down onto the bench and like spread her legs. Gross, <laughs> Diane. Just yep. gross. So through the fall of 1984, she granted media interviews. Anyone that... Need, like just needed to ask and she would talk to them. She even told one reporter that she was looking forward to taking college courses while she was there and that she might want to be a teacher, maybe family development or something like that. Oh, mm, mm-hmm. yep. did she admit in, did, I don't know if you watch no. any of these interviews. Did she ever like admit that she did it or Never. does she still, still say stands she's by that? There's a bushy haired stranger. stranger okay. there. Yep. All right. Yep. She then changed it to wanting to be a counselor for teens. Oh, that's better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. She was a pretty good inmate and was granted access to go to the college classes, but was eventually, that was eventually taken away because she was deemed a flight risk. Um, The parole board set her first parole hearing for 2009. Okay. Yep. So she grants media appearances every fall, like one year in, two years in. Two years in, she gets permission to get Cheryl's autopsy photos and claiming that she needs them to help with her appeal. She then studies them for hours and shows them to everyone in the jail, making everybody look at them. She even like shoved them into one of the, um, one of the like guards faces and the guard ended up like vomiting. Oh my God. And so the guard was like, nope, these need to be taken away. Yeah. But she literally wanted to keep them and they were like, oh no. That is, no. That's horrible. Yep. Diane announces that she's going to write a book. So Oregon legislature puts through a special bill stopping Diane and any other convicted felon from profiting on stories of their crimes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Diane wants so badly to be pregnant again and is afraid that female issues in the future will prevent her from having any more children. She's still delusional. She's thinking she's going to get out in five years. Oh my God. Her appeal is going to go through and she's going to get a new trial next summer and she'll, she'll be acquitted. And, um, she falls for this other inmate named Frank and actually calls him her husband, even though they aren't actually allowed to interact. Is this, I was like, is this a co-ed prison? It was, it was, but it wasn't. There were two blocks and like, they weren't allowed to interact or intermingle. Like the only time the women could see the men was if they were like out in the the rec yard, they could look into like, look at the men's section, but they weren't supposed to. Yeah. Um, avert your eyes, ladies. Yeah. So Christy and Danny spent three years with the Slavins, their foster family. Mm-hmm. They did well in school. Christy's right arm was still mostly paralyzed, but she was first chair in the band playing the French horn. Oh. Not sure how that worked, but... Hmm. And she volunteered to help manage the volleyball and softball teams. Wow. She wasn't coordinated enough to play, but she loved the team atmosphere and it helped Aww. her socially. Yep. Danny could crawl around using his arms. <gasps> Um, and he stopped focusing on trying to do things that he couldn't do and got better at what he could do. He loved to swim and go on the trampoline. Um, the two spent weekends with Joanne and Fred Hugie doing fun things. Oh, sweet babies. Yep. After the trial, they didn't see anyone from their past lives. Steve still lives in Chandler and was upset that the newly reinstated death penalty in Oregon wasn't pro- retroactive. Mm. Um, he doesn't write or talk to the kids. He kind of let them do their thing. Yeah. Um, they had new loving lives. Amy Elizabeth was adopted and she was renamed Rebecca Becky Babcock. Oh, yep. That's a name. Yep. And she does eventually find out who her mother was and actually contacted Diane. I was reading up about her life and, um, she's like a counselor or something, but she, and she has a son, a son of her own, but she, um, contacted Diane and was reading, like writing letters back and forth. But then Diane's letters like started going off the rails Yeah, and with all these conspiracy theorists. And then at one point Diane was blaming her being part of the conspiracy theory and like whatever. And finally Becky was like, stop talking to me. She's like, like, and we're done. Yeah. Don't talk to me anymore. In the summer of 1986, Christy and Danny were adopted by Joanne and Fred Hugie. Oh, I love that journey for them. Yep. That's so sweet. Yep. Hugie adopted them. Oh, he literally, he literally like was like, no one's ever going to hurt them again. Yeah. They'd have to go through me. Yep. What a good guy. So Diane took college courses, uh, four days a week. Her mother, Willa Dean visited her religiously every week. And so did a man named Richard Cohn, who was working on a biography for her. He didn't have a contract or anything. He was just writing this biography. In the summer of 1987, she walked across the graduation stage with an associate's of arts degree in general studies. Mm, Good for you, Diane. Meaning I took classes. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So on the morning of July 11th, 
Diane Downs escapes prison. What? Wait, what year is this? July 11th, 86? 86. Okay. Uh, no, sorry, 87. 87? Yep. July 11th, 1987. She escaped. She escaped. Yep. She was up early dressed in multiple layers of clothing, and when she was allowed in the yard, she carried her... She used to go out in the yard with a towel and lay on one of the picnic tables and, like, sunbathe. Uh-huh. Um, she ca- carried her normal towel with her, and um, even though it was cloudy, and in the towel, she had leather-palmed gloves to help her get over the barbed wire fence. Oh, shit. Um, when she jumped the fence, another inmate actually hit the ground, assuming that the guard would see Diane and shoot at her, but he didn't. She had studied their patterns when they would be watching the men's side instead of the women's side. Um, so Diane was free as of 8.40 a.m. The problem was that the fence alarm was too sensitive. It was always going off if, for the wind and birds. Oh, so no. when the fence alarm went off, people were like, oh, okay. And oh, like no. they didn't really look, look. They just kind of like yeah. glanced and didn't see anything and were like, oh, okay, it's fine. F- at five minutes to nine, so this is like... About 15 minutes later, one of the nurses was parking her car. And when she looked over, she saw a woman laying on the parking lot under a truck. Okay. Because she, she was like vertical. She was no, yep. horizontal to her and could see her like laying under the truck. Yep. And the woman, th- um, she thought it was really weird. So as she gets out of the car, the woman kind of comes out from underneath the truck. And she's like, that looks like Diane Downs. But she's like, even if it is, I'm not supposed to confront her. Like, uh, yep. So she goes into the prison and tells them that she thought Diane escaped. At 9.10, after an emergency inmate check, it was confirmed that Diane had escaped. They're like, can you check on her? Because I'm yeah. pretty sure she's in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they immediately made Fred Hughie and Lou and Charlene aware because they didn't know what her plan was. Right. They also let Anne Rule know. Oh. This is, yeah, this is actually in a, like, addendum to the book. They let her know because Diane was furious over the book and how it portrayed her and would go on and on to the guards about that book oh, and shit. that lady. Yep. So they let Anne Rule know because yeah. she was... By 921, the hunt was on in, in what they called the felony flats area around the prison. It was full of like parolees and halfway houses, people that would be sympathetic to the plight of a fleeing convict. Oh, see, if it was me, though, I would think that they'd be the quickest to turn it in, turn them in because they don't want to like fuck up their parole. True. But no, well, I don't know, but that's what they, they started searching Mm. that area. Okay. A call came in that a family had inadvertently given a hitchhiking, um, Diane Downs a ride. She had been asked to drop, be dropped off at a convenience store in the area. A wanted poster was put up and all sorts of sightings, um, started coming in for the next few days. They searched for Diane's, they searched Diane's cell over and over. And on July 15th, uh, four days later. Yeah. On July 15th, one of the investigators noticed some faint indentations on a clipboard paper a blank clipboard paper, and they couldn't come up with what had been written above it, so they sent it to the FBI. Okay. So on July 20th, the FBI came back with a map and an address. <laughs> yep. They get to the house, and these two men come out, and then there are two more people behind a closed upstairs bedroom door. One of the men says, Diane's up there. Yeah. Um, in the room with her was Wayne Seifer? Seifer? Seifer. Wayne Seifer. Husband of Diane's cell block friend, Luis Seifer. Okay. Yep. She had been on the loose for 11 days. Mm. Rumor was that the inmates were going to cheer and clap as she came back to the prison, so the superintendent issued a lockdown. (laughs) Um, She returned in silence and went to solitary, where she was only allowed a nightgown, bra, and slippers to wear, and one book a day. Good. Apparently, she had had relations with Seifer. Mm. I I know. Shocking, right? Oh, my God. Was she pregnant again? Well, she was with him. Oh my God, is she pregnant again? <laughs> She's not. Okay. <laughs> Much oh to my everyone God. but hers relief. Um. <laughs> oh my God. I was going to just bang my head against this microphone right here. <laughs> yep. So um, they both professed to have fallen in love with each other. That was quick. Seifer actually hired a private investigator to find the real killer for her. <laughs> Louise was still legally married to him. Although they were estranged, and Diane had actually learned about him when talking with Louise about how Louise wanted to reconcile with her husband. Diane had promised she wouldn't sleep with him. Louise would watch the news stories about their romance and, like, run crying from the room. She's like, I had my fingers crossed. Yeah, so she was sentenced to five more years in prison, so her parole hearing wouldn't be until 2014, and she did not get pregnant. (laughs) Good. Yes. Oh, my God. Um, she was transferred at the request of Fred Hughie to the Clinton Correctional Facility for Women in New Jersey that is a maximum security prison. Mm. Yep. Diane Downs is now 68 years old and still in prison. Oh, so she did she not get parole in 2014. She has been denied parole three times, most recently in 2020. Good. Yep. 
I and love it. That is the Holy end. Holy moly. <laughs> Story. How many pages was it total? 37? 37 pages total, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it was a 500-page book by Ann Rule, so you definitely, you definitely chopped it down for us. We I, appreciate I, that. I, I did. <laughs> appreciate it. You did the damn thing. I did. I'm very pleased but i'm excited to go back to like leisurely reading <laughs> yeah I, i'm like i'm reading i'm reading for my next case and i'm just like reading about like horrific torture and then i'm like good night <laughs> i'm like i really want to finish the book i was reading but i don't have time <laughs> oh my god really great i i really liked your coverage of the trial i think it's really interesting to see like how in depth they went in it because to me I mean, it, it's one of those things like we have all the information, right. you never know what a jury's going to do, but it's like, to me, it's like, God, isn't it so obvious? Like this, uh, what happened? Like there's all these inconsistencies, but it's, they only get one shot. So they for them get to do everything if... with like the foam car and the ballistics and I mean, they have to, but it just, it seems like overkill when we hear it in this story. It's like, well, of course she fucking did it. Like she's crazy. And they only needed two jurors to acquit her for the whole thing to be acquitted where they needed all 12 to say she was guilty for her to be guilty. So like, you know, it was a crapshoot. Really? Yeah. It needs to be unanimous. No, for, for a conviction, it needs right. to be unanimous. Two jurors could say she didn't do it and it would be... Oh, is that like an Oregon thing? I don't know. That's what the book said. Huh. <laughs> I did not dive that deeply into law while I was at it. But... I need the Oregon penal statute. <laughs> From 1983. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So they, I mean, they did and a really good two, job. There were two jurors that were like holdouts that they were afraid were going to. But Hughie eventually realized that because there were only two jurors that were holdouts... They might be able to just come up, if anything, they'd come up with a hung jury yeah. opposed to like she would be acquitted kind of thing. Right, right. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I guess he, in those six weeks, he lost like 20 pounds just in the trial alone. Oh, my God. I need, yeah. to, tr I need to try a very stressful case. <laughs> That's my diet plan for 2024. He's <laughs> trying a very stressful case. Yeah. I'm going to live off caffeine and milkshakes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. These men really just were not... They did everything they could to make sure that this crazy yeah. bitch did not. And then Hughie adopted them. He did. That's so sweet. And the, they always wanted kids, but they just didn't with their career, like, I know. have kids. So now they had these two kids that they already loved and they would protect with their lives. That's so cute. Mm -hmm. I love that. I do too. Well, that one, it ended in a heartwarming manner. I mean. Sort of. I mean, I know yeah, someone Cheryl's died. I'm dead, just but, saying. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, and is. I don't. In her, in her, I think I might have skipped it, but in her, um, in her cell, she had pictures of Christy and Danny and the infant pictures of Amy Elizabeth, but, but no. not Cheryl. <sighs> mm -hmm. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I wish butthole spiders on Diane Downs. <laughs> Infinite butthole spiders. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you for your baby break coverage. Guys, if you're enjoying listening to Grimm, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, make our day by leaving us a written review. You can find our page on Facebook by searching Grimm colon a true crime podcast. If you want to subscribe to our Patreon, you can go to Patreon and search Grimm colon a true crime podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. If you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim. Grim.